All right, why don't we go to the Bible? So can I get you guys to please open up your Bibles? I'm going to read this passage for us, and then uh, Daniel is going to come and unpack this word for us today. Uh, the, the passage today is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. I'll read this for us, and I'll be reading from the uh, ESV Bible. It's a reminder as we read this together uh, that this is the Word of God. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has confidence, uh, reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Amen. Thanks, Peter. Good morning, everyone. It's always great to stand before you guys here and preach God's word. It's a joy and privilege to do so. Um, see some new faces, some returning old faces. Um, just a special shout out to Harry and Charlie, they're my work friends. Don't want to embarrass them, but thanks for coming to church. Harry's, um, Harry promised me uh, about two, three years ago that he'll come visit my church, and you know, you fulfilled your promise, brother. All right, um, let's jump into God's Word. Um, I do apologize, we don't have slides for uh, today. Um, I guess that's another sort of challenge to you to uh, lean in and pay attention to what God has to say uh, for us all. Uh, a little bit about myself. Um, I've been a Christian for almost 12 years now, and ever since my conversion 12 years ago, I think even more so, I felt this recently, I've always had the sense that there was kind of like a disconnect between my own personal lived faith and the faith I read about uh, in this Bible here. Uh, don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm a genuine Christian, uh, I believe. I, I genuinely believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, I, I genuinely believe that he died in my place for my sake, for my sin, and because of that, by faith I have new life. It's good. But for some reason, maybe you're in the same boat, but when I read the Bible and what I read of people in the Bible who were at times just as flawed and imperfect as us, and yet somehow have a, have a completely radical 
and different lived out experience uh, when it comes to their, their faith. I, I don't know. It's just something wrong there. I feel it. You know, when I read about Abraham, how he heard God and he followed God and left everything behind. Uh, when I read about Job, how he suffered the loss of everything. Everything was taken away from him. And through all the ups and downs of processing that, at the end, he still praises God. I think my personal favorite is when I read the book of Psalms, particularly uh, when I read the prayers of King David. I just, I don't know, I get this like weird sense of this angst-filled, almost schizophrenic, like spiritual, spiritually schizophrenic kind of guy who's like on the one hand saying, I love you, Lord, and then it's like, I don't love you enough. Where are you, God? But you're here. It's, it's kind of like, it's weird. Uh, it's riveting, but weird at the same time. I read that and I'm like, I don't necessarily feel that kind of spiritual angst. Uh, I could keep, keep on going. Those are just three characters that, that popped into mind as I was preparing this talk. But it, sort of, I guess the examples in the, Bibles, uh, in the Bible, when I read them, they are inspirational in one sense. But at the same time, they seem also a little bit unrelatable to me. Ever since my conversion... A question has always lingered at the back of my mind, and it's this one. Why does my faith seem so mundane, so ordinary, so settled compared to what I see in the Bible? I think recently, I think early last year and continuing on into the year uh, uh, 2022, I, this question came up to me uh, more than before. And I think maybe it's because I've been a Christian for a while. Maybe it bothers me now more because uh, maybe it's, you're on, again, on the same boat, in the same boat as me. Uh, you've been a Christian for a long time, and you know what I mean. You become kind of settled in your faith. You become settled. I used to do this when I was new when I was a new Christian, when I was a younger Christian. I, I used to be like this, but not anymore. I remember when I first came to the Lord uh, as a university student. I remember, I thought I could change the world for Jesus. I, I remember feeling a, a genuine, passionate kind of certainty that following Jesus was absolutely the most important thing I could do with this life. And if I'm honest, in the early days of my Christian faith, I'd go to church and I'd see older people who attended church regularly, and I'd see them, and I, I would kind of feel this sense of frustration that they didn't kind of vibe with me in the same way when it came to our faith. I'd sometimes even see them as old and bitter and jaded people, and I'd say to myself, oh, I'll never be like that when I'm older. And here I am over 10 years later, and becoming the very thing that my 20-year-old self would be frustrated at. See, I guess the point of me sharing that with you is, is it really a natural, inevitable outcome of every Christian? That the longer you stay a Christian, the more settled we get. Is it inevitable that as believers, we slip further and further into this kind of resigned mediocrity? where God is a pleasant afterthought among all the other thoughts that we think about throughout the week? Or are we missing something? 
I think the first thing we need to do together is to dive deeper into understanding this problem we're talking about. I think even the most unenthusiastic Christian, by simple virtue of attending church, that's you guys now, we grow, don't we? You come to church, you sing some songs, you hear the Bible preached, you hear, some might hear a bit more than others, but at least we hear something. And we leave learning something, if not consciously, then perhaps even subconsciously. We read the Bible, we pray as Christians. I mean, the amount varies from person to person, but, but still, Christians read the Bible. We, we, we pray to God. Uh, we practice our religion, in a sense. So, almost naturally, church-going Christians grow. We grow, in a manner of speaking, uh, as Christians. But here's the thing. Something really uh, curious happens, I think, as we tick over year by year uh, as Christians. We almost naturally lean into the current sort of Christian schedule of growth. You know what I mean? Attending church, maybe joining a midweek group, talking to friends about Jesus from time to time, praying before a meal. We, we kind of get sucked into that schedule and we become familiar with it all. We become familiar with the teachings, the sermons, the songs, the prayers. And then we slowly but surely, we, we presume upon God a little bit more and a little bit more. And the more familiar we get with something, the more unsurprised and unexcited we tend to get by it. Isn't that the natural state of the human heart and the human mind? Think of your first day at your job. Your first day at your job, it's nerve-wracking. You don't know what to expect. It's mixed in with excitement, isn't it? And a little bit of fear. And after the day, every part of the day, you can recall. But if you've been at the same job, slogging away at the day-to-day -day tasks that your job demands of you, the excitement and fear becomes lesser and lesser, doesn't it? We become more comfortable. And before you know it, you might even feel a little bit jaded. You kind of resign to the fact that you're just another cog in the corporate machine, if you will. Study after study, uh, recently um, in particular, shows that uh, most of our generation, so I'll imagine that most of us are millennials and Gen Zers, we're more and more likely to leave our jobs earlier than previous generations. Uh, one study, I think Deloitte did this in, in last year, a quarter of Gen Zers leave their job within two years. Maybe that's you. I don't think it's a coincidence that millennials and Gen Zers are considered uh, two of the most emotionally driven generations that we've ever had. Uh, but in any case, uh, we, we, we have been taught and we grew up uh, told to pursue that which we love, to do what you love, pursue your passion above everything else. I guess my point is, just as many of us fall into a sense of, I guess, mediocrity and a sort of resigned uh, contentment at work, is it not then possible that our outlook on our faith is also being lived like this? See, the longer we remain a Christian, the more familiar we get with being a Christian. 
And the more familiar we get with it, the more we get bored. The more we get less and less surprised by this God that we say made us and rules us. And I think there's also another, I think personally, personally for me, a, a deeply worrying trend. Um, and I noticed this in me a lot. Um, the more and more we learn, the more and more we think we know. You guys with me that? The more and more we learn, the more and more we think we know. And sometimes we think we know enough. Haven't we all been there? We hear a sermon on a particular topic, maybe. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard it all. And you've heard this one before, sure. Uh, maybe it was a couple of years back and I haven't really applied it and I don't remember what the passage was, but I, it's familiar to me. But I've heard it. And what's the temptation there? Well, the temptation is to just sit there, close your ears, and twiddle your thumbs and wait for the service to end. We've all been there, right? I've heard this before. I know this before. And the reason why I say that this has been personally a... a a challenge for me is because, I mean, I've studied the Bible professionally, so to speak. I've gone to Bible college. I've done seven years of education. I've studied Greek and Hebrew. I don't remember any of it, but I, I studied it. Uh, and I've taken theology classes, philosophy classes. I've read books and books and uh, books about, you know, uh, prayer and spirituality, worldview, yada, yada, yada. And, and do you know what my heart tends to do in that kind of moment of puffed up pride? It can close itself off from God entirely. I've subconsciously convinced myself that there is no more to learn. Almost ironically, I, know a lot, I say I know a lot about God, but by closing my heart off from God, that actually reveals how little I know of God. Okay? Think about it. How is it even thinkable that God, the all-consuming fire, who knows me infinitely better than I know myself, whose wisdom and knowledge are unsearchable, is something I know enough about. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote our passage, wrote another letter to a church in the city of Corinth. In the first letter, he says this. He says, he kind of touches on this. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. He says, all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We know up to that point, but then the very next verse, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. I honestly didn't even know that was in the passage before I researched it this week. Let me read it again. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. We would do well in considering this warning, especially as we enter into 2023, as we, as Christians, gain another year, we're talking, of course, about pride. But, but pride is, is a curious thing. Out of all of our human vices, out of all of the kind of sinful or undesirable attitudes that we have in our hearts, I think pride is unique in that if you say you aren't proud, then it's likely that you have a lot of it. But if you say that I struggle with pride, then you're probably on the right track. 
See how unique that works, uniquely that works? Pride is a sin that every one of us struggles with, and it's not, it, it's also, it also exists in the realm of knowing God. It's one of those, it's only for those who, I guess, realize that pride is a danger when knowing God that we're actually moving in the right direction. See, the more we age as Christians, the more we think we know enough, we are content in our knowledge, thinking that we know it all. I think that's a tragedy. Uh, one Christian author named C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, people are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. We're far too satisfied with the mediocre, aren't we? We end up settling for a version of the Christian faith that doesn't really challenge us. We become happy with this weird mundane version of God made in our own image and we've forgotten this, this consuming fire that lies at the center of our faith. And now, unlike us, Here's the Apostle Paul here in our passage today. Here's a guy who got it. Here's a guy who really understood this consuming fire, who walked the talk and practiced what he preached. I think out of all the Bible characters, all of the men and women who seem to have their hearts set on fire for the things of God, I think the Apostle Paul is probably, I mean, if it was a race, um, I think the Apostle Paul was among the closest you'll get to the finish line. He, he is the closest that you would get to a perfect faith, other than, of course, Jesus. We're looking at a passage here, at verses three to four, uh, three to, sorry, three to six, let me read it out. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, what are we focusing here, um, focusing on? There's a lot here. I don't have time to unpack it all, but let me focus on that phrase, confidence in the flesh. What does that mean? Uh, simply put, it's confidence in the outward things of life. Confidence in our works, confidence in what we have achieved, accomplished, confidence in our background and, how, and our inherited privilege. See, when you read uh, this passage, most of us can't relate to what he's saying. I mean, like, circumcised on the eighth day, it's like, that doesn't really, you know. Um, people of Israel, none of us are Jews here, right? Tribe of Benjamin, uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, again, none of us are Jews here. As the law of Pharisee, we kind of know Pharisees as bad things, so we kind of, you know, can't relate to that. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, it's like, whoa. It doesn't make sense to us. But, but how we can kind of understand this in context is, at the time, Paul is using a list of qualifications that kind of meant that a person is considered the best, the morally virtuous, the most successful in the religious sphere, in the social sphere, in every other sphere of human existence, Paul is just naming, naming a couple and saying, you think you're better than me? No, I am better than you. It's kind of, you know, he, he takes what we think all the time about success, and then he kind of shoves himself into that space, and he goes, 
I'm better than you. Are you successful? Paul says, I'm more successful. Do you have an impressive background and privilege and an uh, 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 educational background? Paul says his is even better in religion and society and morality. Do you think you're good? No, I'm better. No one was better than me. And then Paul says, as loudly as he can communicate on paper, who cares? Who cares? Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Every accomplishment, every victory, everything that made me respectable and valuable, confidence in the flesh, is rubbish compared to Jesus. Now again, that word rubbish, we can't really feel the full force of that word. Let me unpack that. The word rubbish in Greek is eskalon. The word rubbish is a pretty, it's a pretty poor translation. I mean, ESV is great, but it, it is a pretty bad translation. I don't think any other Bible translation actually does it justice um, because, you know, Christians are people who don't really, you know, swear, right? So we, in the Bible, we try to make it kind of palatable to us, but that word eskalon is a, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a swear word that the ancients used to describe the word that we use when we stump our toe on a, you know, you know what I'm saying? The, the, the word that rhymes with ship but ends with T, right? That that's the word that we find. And I'm not advocating that we should, you know, pop off our mouths here and there. But, but we have to see it as it is. Paul, Paul is saying that compared to Christ, everything that he has accomplished is like, you know? Doesn't that make you go, whoa. The best of our best, without Jesus, looks like a pile of rubbish. Now for me, comparing my own lived out experience to this, the frustration boils over because the, the gap is so far. Paul seems like a super Christian. The example in the Bible, it seems like it's there not to inspire me, but to discourage me. I mean, if the Christian faith is supposed to look like the faith that Paul had, then why does my faith look nothing like this? Maybe that's what you're thinking. And in one sense, we have to, we have to come to terms with the fact that Paul is different, isn't he? He's, he's an apostle. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was a guy whose transformation was just completely 180 degrees, right? He was the guy that, imagine that friend or colleague that you think he, would ne- he or she would never come to faith. That's Paul. He came. The guy who hated Christians. The guy who did everything in his power to mock you as a Christian. This guy became a Christian. So in a way, he is very different. But I think in a more important and bigger sense, Paul is much, much more relatable to us ordinary Christians than we might think. Because at the core of Paul's words here is this same sense of dissatisfaction at his own personal faith. It's the same thing that we feel at oftentimes. Let me read it. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And this is, I love this part. He says, oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Hang on a second. He's all these things. And he's saying he desires to know Jesus more. And then to cap it off, he says, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. There's this frustration here. Paul feels a disconnect as well. He knows who Jesus is. He knows what Jesus has done for him. And that is precisely why he knows that he is not there yet. He, does, he doesn't know Jesus as well as Jesus deserves to be known. He doesn't have nearly as much of Jesus as he would like. He's still far, far, far from being completely and wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. Jesus is infinite. Every single day, there is more of him to be had. This is what the Apostle Paul got. Now back to me. How foolish is it of me then, for having followed Jesus for only 12 years, to become bored and content with what I already know of him? How foolish is it of me to be satisfied with the blessings of yesterday when there is an eternity of blessings to be had and gained in Jesus? That's what Paul got. Jesus is infinitely better than every, little, every single little thing in our life. Everything that distracts us away from Jesus. Every pursuit we believe will enrich and better our lives. Compared to Jesus, they are nothing. There is a disconnect that Paul feels, but unlike, and get this guys, unlike so many of us, he takes this disconnect and pushes into it. He lets himself feel the angst. He feels the frustration, the desire, rather than what we sometimes do, which is to settle. The invitation that sits at the core of our passage is an invitation to want. It's an invitation to become dissatisfied. When I read about how the Apostle Paul, even the Apostle Paul, says that he hasn't arrived at the point of being content with his faith, I don't know, it just gives me a bit of, faith, uh, a bit of, bit of hope and faith. Because I'm not there either. 12 years of following Jesus. And I've just scratched the surface of what Jesus has in store for me. How can I then be okay with the lessons of yesterday? How can I be okay with the experiences of the past? Are you with me on this? For all those who are with me, who also know what I'm talking about, who feel that disconnect, who have encountered that all too common sense of unholy contentment and satisfied pride, God invites us this year, 2023, to dig deeper, to go further to follow Jesus more. As I said before, I'll say it like this, the well that is Jesus never runs dry. It has no bottom. It is inexhaustible. It is deeper in joy, in hope, in love, in glory than any other thing that we could find in this world. 
And there's a promise in the book of Jeremiah and in the book of James that has held me and fastened me to the ground for a long time, and I'll share this with you. It's a promise that I've held on to, and it's this. If we draw near to God, God promises that he will draw near to us. That's James, book of James. In Jeremiah, we read, you will seek him and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. Isn't that beautiful, those two promises? If we give it our all and gun it for Jesus, he's not going to disappoint. It's basically my version of those two Bible passages. He's not going to disappoint. If only we would give it our all. Speaking of giving that all, we need to, brothers and sisters, embrace the angst rather than settle for what we have. I think the secret, at least a part of that secret, to why the Bible characters seemed so close to God is that, unlike so many of us, they didn't lock their emotional angst for God away in some deep, dark part of their hearts, as we so often do. Feeling a sense of frustration that I'm not there yet when it comes to the Christian faith, that's actually fuel for the fire. When you read the Apostle Paul's words, is this a man who is content with his faith? Absolutely not. It reflects a man who already has Jesus and yet wants more of Jesus. That's the paradox of the Christian faith. The paradox of the Christian faith. Here it is. Our hearts, before we meet Christ, before we become Christians, are restless before Christ. We find rest when we find Christ. And then the rest of our lives, we feel a sense of kind of holy restlessness, knowing that every day we get to know more of Christ. That's the paradox of the Christian faith. In a very, 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 very small way, it's like, a, it's like the hobby that you love and enjoy, whether it's golf or basketball or for me it's playing my PlayStation um, or whatever it could be or however trivial it might sound. Why do we have hobbies? We discovered it because we, we love it. We enjoy it, right? We're like, yes, I'm actually not bad at I don't know, basketball or golf or whatever. And then you love doing it become passionate about it, etc., etc. You found it, you like it. Do you just do it once? No. You find opportunities to do it again. You find every opportunity sometimes to do it again. Sometimes, some of us make very big sacrifices to do the things that we love to do. And speaking of sacrifice, the Apostle Paul says that comparing, compared to knowing Jesus more, Everything else is worthless. He is more than willing to give things up if giving it up means getting Jesus. Like our hobbies sometimes for some of us. See, a deep and genuine faith calls us to lay aside the distractions of our lives that draw our attention away from what really matters most. And I, I kind of grappled with my head to kind of think of how to package this nicely, but I, I don't think there's a way around this. So I'm just going to say it as it is. Part of the reason why Jesus, uh, not Jesus, Paul seems so consumed with 
Jesus. Part of the reason why Paul seems so devoted to Jesus is because he's paid a big price for Jesus. We know that feeling, right? We spend a large amount of money to buy something. We treasure it a little bit, a little bit more. We, we take care of it a little bit more. That's what Paul is saying here. There is a kind of ambition. Don't you, don't you kind of hear it? There's a kind of ambition that we feel from Paul's words. His goal is clear. What is it? To know Jesus more. And he sacrifices a lot of things, but those sacrifices seem very, very small to someone whose ambition drives them. Let me kind of put it this way. Some of us know what I'm talking about. Some of us who are ambitious. And I know a lot of you guys are. You're driven by ambition. You were driven by ambition to be where you are at in your job, for example. Maybe it's your ambition right now to the younger uh, brothers and sisters in our congregation. Maybe it is your ambition that is driving you to the top of whatever profession that you kind of want to be in, in the future. Think of that ambitious person. An ambitious person is willing to lay aside many things, not necessarily because those things are bad for them, but because it gets in their way. Christians need this kind of ambition. Not for our careers, but for our Christ. A Pauline ambition, if you will. To be ambitious about our faith and love for Jesus. To keep pressing forward. To make it my own. Because why? Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, if you are in the same boat as me, if you're, all, if you're with me on this, if you've aged another year as a Christian and you're kind of a little bit sick and tired of being too content in your faith, if there is a mundane sort of ordinariness about your faith and you don't want that anymore, then this invitation is God's call to you. Dig deeper, embrace the angst, get ambitious for Jesus. I think often we, we think that faith is at risk when life takes a turn for the worst. Have we thought of it like that? I can love Jesus when life is good. Hard to love Jesus when life is bad. When suffering is around the corner, when hardships occur, when things happen in my life that I cannot explain. But when I read the scriptures, that's not the case. That's not the case. The truth of the matter is, faith is most at risk when the mundane starts to set in. When the extraordinary God of the universe seems a little bit more ordinary than before. When the life-changing gospel, the good news of Jesus, seems to just bore me. We need to jump out of that boredom, brothers and sisters. Get up. Run. Run hard after Jesus with me because there's nothing more important to prioritize on your list of New Year resolutions than this. Um, when I was told by Paul that I would be preaching a standalone sermon for the second Sunday of the year, my initial thoughts were to do something kind of habit-related. I've done that before, you know, 
New Year's resolutions. Why not? Something about, you know, reading the Bible more or praying more or loving more or something like that, right? And these things are not bad. They're actually essential. But as I thought about it a little bit more, as I kind of did some self-reflection, I realized that preaching about the Bible and preaching about prayer, all that kind of stuff, they're good things, but they're not necessarily going to motivate demotivated people to do what needs to be done, isn't it? It isn't, convinc- it isn't going to convince a, you know, contented and coasting Christian to pick up their slack and get the ball rolling, so to speak. That, you know, it's tough, kind of. Because, you know why? Well, the issue isn't, like I said way before, it's not that we don't know. It's not the head that's the issue. It's the heart. We know reading the Bible is important and prayer is important, but why don't we do any of those things as much as we know we should? Because of the problem. We've become too familiar with our faith, too proud to see that there is so much more of God to know and experience. This sermon isn't a call to do anything, guys. It's not a call to do anything. It's a call to feel something. It's a call to feel. It's not a call to learn. It's a call to lean in. God never calls any of his children to a mediocre, contented, ordinary kind of faith. Nowhere in scripture do I find that. You know, let me finish it off with this. You know the very people that God chose in the Old Testament, that people group, what are they called in the Bible? Israel, yeah? You know what Israel means in the Hebrew? It means to wrestle and struggle and contend with God. I think that's a really nice way to understand our faith. We are the people of God, the people of Israel, bought by the blood of Christ, and now we struggle with God. We wrestle with God. We contend with God. We struggle. That's the Christian faith. And struggling and wrestling isn't done with the, you know, carefree and cavalier kind of attitude, is it? It's emotion-filled. It's, it's energy-draining. But the point is, we need to keep fighting for our faith. I think for me, being a Christian for 12 years, somewhere along the way, I had forgotten this. I'd forgotten what it felt like to wrestle with God, to struggle and fight, to be near Him, draw near to Him. I've become comfortable in my maturity, and ironically, I've exposed my immaturity. Is this you as well? Hmm? Have you been a Christian for a while now and just kind of floated into a state of ordinariness that the God of the universe doesn't seem to surprise you or interest you all that much anymore. Another year has gone, my friends. 2022 is over. Another year has come. And all of us as Christians have aged another year. So how different will this year look like for you? Are you expecting it to be very much the same thing? Peppered in with ordinary Sunday attendance and half-baked attempts to fix small things in your life? Or will you make a change with me and feel? Not in doing, but in feeling. To say with our hearts that I will not be content with being content anymore.
Let's spend some time praying. Just close your eyes with me. And just spend some time reflecting on, I guess, what was said. I won't lead us into any prayer points. I'm just going to leave the mic here and give you some space to do business with the Lord in prayer. Give you about a minute or two. Just feeling that disconnect. Confessing to God, I need you more. And like Paul, like Paul said, there's, no, there's nothing that is more important in this life than knowing Jesus, being more like Jesus, and living for Jesus. So yeah, do some business with God, my friends.